we're going to look in um, Mark chapter 6, and uh, I'll do a little bit of review since I weren't here last week, and it'll be a little bit for me as well as for you. So Mark is writing his gospel to let us know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And um, in, in the things he picks out, it's the shortest gospel as far as uh, wording, and he, <clears throat> he picks out the things that prove that Jesus is Christ. So, so do the other gospel writers as well, but they, they use different methods because they have a different audience. Mark probably is writing to a Greek audience or a Gentile audience, and because he, he explains sometimes Jewish tradition, and if, if he is writing to the Jews like Matthew did, then he wouldn't have to explain that. So, <clears throat> so he, he, wants, he wants his readers to know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Uh, he, he, he came for a purpose. It's not what happens, not random to him. Uh, he didn't assume this role. He's eternally the Son of God, and he came in, incarnate in the flesh for the purpose of dying on the cross. And so uh, Mark does it, and he, he uses the word immediately a lot. So he's, he's progressing in the story uh, quickly, and he's picking out things that Jesus did and said to, to, to show his readers and to us by the Holy Spirit that this is the Christ, and uh, what he has done is significant, and we can trust him. We can, we can believe. Where we've come to in chapter 6 is probably the midpoint of Jesus' ministry, public ministry. He had picked his disciples. They're with him. Uh, they're observing what he is doing and saying, and, and yet had not come to a full realization that he is God in the flesh. They, they, they know he is doing miraculous things. They're, they're, they're witnessing that, and, and yet they don't fully understand. We see that in the text. We saw it uh, in chapter 5 uh, about the stilling of the storm. They were amazed. Uh, we, we see it in, in various ways. We're going to see it again in, in, in chapter 6, but I, I just want you to know when we're looking through the chapter that that he picks out things that some of the other gospel writers doesn't use, but he picks out things that say this is the Christ. You can trust him. Um, it, it's showing that the disciples themselves, the, who would become the apostles and probably other disciples, that they're being brought along in their assurance. And why would they need that? You know, you, know, you would think if we saw a miracle ourselves today, if we saw a miracle that we would believe, but it's really not true. And Jesus makes it clear, and I'll try to point that out today, as I have in weeks previous. Jesus makes it clear that you're not saved by miracles. You remember, he, 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 he told the rich man who had died and gone to Hades, or, or the intermediate place before he'd go into the final hell, when he asked if uh, Lazarus could go and warn his brothers and and. and and Abraham responded, which is Jesus is telling this story. Abraham responded and said, even though one rose from the dead, they would not believe. And so belief doesn't come through miracles. Belief. So, so the disciples, think about it from their viewpoint. They, they had left their living and they had committed themselves to Jesus of Nazareth. And they were impressed by him. They, they knew he was doing miraculous things. They knew he was teaching things that were different. 
but it's that, than anyone they've heard before. He was he had authority, and not only did he have authority to work miracles, he had authority in the way he spoke, as opposed to other rabbis and teachers that they'd heard. But but also they thought, as the Jewish leadership did, they thought that when the Messiah came from the Old Testament prophecies, when the Messiah came, that he would come as a ruler. And he would come to defeat the Roman Empire. Because again, if you go back through, like, like in Isaiah, for example, maybe chapter 61, and, and, and what you see is that um, Israel's going to be restored during the millennial, king, millennial kingdom. They're going to be restored, and the prophets taught that. And that's what they were looking for. They were looking for a restoration of their nation to a, to a place of prominence. And of course, the Messiah would be the one who would bring that about. And so here they're following Jesus, and he is not doing that. That's not, his, that's not his direction. He is not amassing the crowds that are following them. He's not shaping them into an army. He, he's not doing it like they thought. So they're wondering, is this the Messiah? Is he, and it's probably, they didn't discuss this among themselves, but they probably had this thought, because Jesus keeps bringing them along. So it's evident from the scripture that he's bringing them along as they come along. So pray with me, and then we'll look in chapter 6. Our Father, I pray that this morning that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand your word. Help us to see Christ and him magnified. Lord, help us to have a greater faith because of your word, and we will be grateful for what you do in us. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, chapter 6. <clears throat> then he, Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country. His disciples followed him, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So a couple of things I want to point out. Jesus comes to his hometown. They knew him. Um, Edersheim says this was the Nazareth was probably about 500 people. It was it, it was no significance at all. It's not mentioned in the rabbinical teaching or writing, so it's a town of no significance. If you live in a town of 500 people, they know you, and and you know them, and and you know everyone, and they knew him, and probably they had heard him read in the synagogue before. In, in fact. Most commentators believe this is the second time he went in the synagogue. The first time is recorded in, in the book of Luke. And when he went there the first time in his hometown synagogue, he took, the, he took the scroll from Isaiah and he read from chapter 61 saying that he is the Christ. And he's come to open the eyes of the blind. He's come to heal the sick. He's come, uh, he, he's come to do those things. And, profet- and he's saying to them, I am your Messiah in that reading of that text. And you remember, they drove him out of the synagogue. So now I guess they've kind of gotten over it. They've heard about his fame. 
because word has spread. Everywhere he went, crowds came. And so now when he comes back, they let him speak again. But, but he speaks with such authority. And he speaks with such, I guess, an insight to the Scripture that whatever he read there, that they say, who is this guy? We know him. Who does he think he is? You know, there is a cliche that says that um, familiarity breeds contempt. You familiar with it? And we know that. Sometimes that's true in our life. Sometimes we, we sometimes, and I shouldn't include you in this because you may not do it, but we sometimes resent the people who are of our station who rise above us. And, and we have a little resentment toward that. We think, had I had that break, had I had that education, had I had that rich uncle who died, whatever, you know, whatever circumstances that they rose above us and, and station in life, uh, but there's just our, it's just our fallen nature. Our fallen nature is that some, sometimes we resent uh, other people's um, blessing and, and their exaltation. Uh, so here, they didn't respond. They had heard the stories. They had heard about his miracles. They probably had people they knew who had been healed by him, but their resentment cause them not to believe. So it's interesting when we read that Jesus then didn't do much work there among them from this point on. And, and we think his work is not according to our faith, but, but his work is limited when, by unbelief. You know, it's really interesting when you read the gospel, Jesus goes to people who have no belief at all. They're not looking for him. They're going about their daily business and he intersects their life and changes them. But he, but he doesn't respond to unbelief. When they have, a, when they have the, the, the knowledge of who he is and what he's done, and they will not respond to that at all. Now, see, it's one thing. Nicodemus came and he, to, to Jesus by night, and he just said, I'm interested, but I'm confused. And Jesus responded to him. And when we come to him and say, I'm interested, but I'm confused. I'm interested, but I don't understand. I'm interested... <laughs> but I can't figure out what you're doing. He responds to us from his word by his spirit. He, he lead, gives us leadership, but not to unbelief. He doesn't go and push himself on unbelief. He, he allows people to dwell in, in their unbelief. So he marveled at their unbelief. Here, here was the people who had, had heard all that he did, and some of them had seen what he did, but they just rejected him, and, and he marveled. The Bible only says two times that he marveled at anything, and it's really interesting. He, he marveled at a centurion's belief, and he marveled at these people's unbelief. Pretty, pretty interesting. So then he go, he leaves them at the end of chapter uh, verse six. Then he went about the villages and a circuit teaching. Uh, today, if you look at the map of Israel, you wouldn't see uh, just a lot of villages located. You probably have a map in the back of your Bible. But then there were hundreds of villages because people didn't commute. You know, you, if, if you walked everywhere you went, you didn't go to the big city to shop. So people lived there, hundreds of villages. And, and so he, he went in a circuit and he sends out his disciples. We read that in verse 7. Then he called the twelve unto himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. And, and get that, he gave them power over unclean spirits 
He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belt, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Now, why would he say that? When you read the the rabbinical writing, um, if a rabbi was going to go into the temple or if a person was going to go into the temple to worship, just an average person was going to go into the Jewish temple, they would not take with them their articles of work. Uh, they would go uh, without uh, their money bag. They would go without their traveling shoes. See, there's a difference between your traveling shoes and your sandals. So they, if you were going to go to the temple, they didn't want you to be distracted to other people and not distract yourself. You were going there to worship. And, and this may be part of it. Jesus wants the people to know that they're going to, that they're there on his business. They're there not... If you read Paul's writing... And Paul makes it clear in Corinthians that there are people who, when they spoke and the traveling teachers of that day, expected an offering. They expected the people to, to support them. And, and Jesus is making it clear by telling them to limit what you take. You're just going on your own and you're trusting God. It's really interesting to me because the church supported me for the last 30 something years. It's really interesting to me. There are a lot of people today, they read something like this and they say, well, the church shouldn't pay people. People should just preach for free. And the truth is, you do preach for free. It's the administration you get paid for. So what happens is that later, if you read in the book of Luke and you go to like chapter 22 and you're going to read that Jesus reversed this, not, not because it was wrong then, but when, when he's going to die and he tells them, now take your money bag and take your cloak, and now you're going to go. Take your staff, and now you're going to go. And if you don't have a sword, sell your coat and buy a sword because you're going to be persecuted. And so he reverses this. But for this time, while he's here among them, he wants them to trust in him and, and in him alone. And he tells them, don't try to better your position. If you're in a house and they receive you, don't. If somebody with a bigger house comes along and offers you lodging, don't go. You stay where you, stay where you went uh, the first time. And then he says to them, and if people don't receive you, they reject your message, shake the dust off your feet. It's what a Jewish person would do if they went through a Gentile city. They would, when, they, when they passed through the city, they'd shake, figuratively shake the dust off their feet, saying, nothing from the Gentiles are going to taint me, and I'm, I'm passing on. It'd be like us going up to New York. We're going to pass by. We're going to see it and marvel, and then when we leave, we don't want to bring their voting habits with us. I just threw that, I just, I just threw that in. That's about the note. So what did they preach? They, they preached, um, well, we hadn't read that yet. Verse 10, they said to them, whatever place you enter, house, stay there until you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. As surely I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. When John the Baptist came, he came preaching repentance. When Jesus came, the Bible says, and here in Mark, he came preaching repentance. They go preaching repentance. It doesn't mean they stood on the street corner and said, repent, repent, or you're going to burn. They didn't do that, but what they did, they preached that this is the time for the kingdom. The king has come, it's time for the kingdom, and, and, and their preaching led to repentance. Their preaching taught people that 
there needs to be repentance for your sin. See, the Jewish people, especially the leadership, and probably some of the people, some of the common people, were under the impression that their Judaism saved them, their practice of their religion, their offering of their sacrifice, the when when they when they did their their meal and they didn't touch the unclean things and they they had this uh, dietary regulation and they dressed certain ways and they didn't touch an unclean body and so they had all these laws of Moses that kept them safe and and kept them healthy and, and but they turned that into their their justification before God when I keep the rules I'm justified before God. And see, that's our nature. Our nature is to do that. Our default thinking is to do that ourselves. You know, something bad happens to me, and I think, Lord, I don't deserve that. I've been faithful to you. Now, you probably never do that, but you probably never think that way. But sometimes that's our default thinking. And and to think Christianly, your mind has to be renewed. You think, I belong to God. He can do anything with me He wants to. He's redeemed my soul eternally, so what He wants to do in my body should be of no consequence to me. (laughs) <laughs> that has to be spiritual thinking and not, that's not our default thinking. So the Lord wanted them to know that when they went forth preaching, they preached that you can't depend on your, you can't depend on your religion, you can't depend on Judaism, you, 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 there has to be a repentance for your sin. Now is the time for Jeremiah's uh, covenant to take place. This is the covenant of grace. Because the Messiah has come, and it, and it led to repentance, and people believed and, and turned to him. We're going to see that in a moment. Uh, verse 13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They cast out many demons. I've said to you, and I believe this, I can't, I can't, I can't prove it from the Scripture, but I believe this. During this time of Jesus' ministry, Satan is in full attack mode, and he, he marshals the demons probably from around the world, and they're concentrating in Israel, and, and more so than any other time. You're going to see a little bit of it in Paul's ministry and after, after Christ has died and resurrected. But during this time, it's very prevalent. Uh, they're prepared. They, they, when Jesus is born, they know something's afoot, and, and they, Satan is in attack mode. And so they cast out many demons. You find that in the Gospels that you don't find in, in the other writing, to the same degree. Because Satan is against him, and Satan is doing all he can to keep Jesus' being, ministry being fulfilled. And, and so the Lord gave them the power. It's really interesting to me that there, there are times, I, I haven't been quite saying that, but there, there are a lot of people today that think, if, if, if I have the Holy Spirit, that I should be able to cast out demons like they did then. No, well, you remember we read here that Jesus gave them this power he gave them this power when he sent them out to preach. He gave them the power to heal people and to cast out demons. It wasn't of themselves. It wasn't from their, their own belief. I put in the notes, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read it to you. Take the time to read it to you quickly. If I can find it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. And if, if you want to look at it, you could... And I think it helps us understand that. I think it's worthwhile for us to look at it. Hebrews 2 and verse 3 and 4. And here's what it says. How shall we escape 
if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Okay, so the Lord speaks about the great salvation. Christ speaks about him coming and forgiveness of sin. And that was confirmed by us. So those, there are those that heard him, second generation. That's the apostles. And now it's confirmed to us. Okay, now it's confirmed to us. And how is it confirmed to us? It's the end of verse 3, confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So God bore witness when God bore witness with their words by giving them this power. Okay, so today, why why does the average Christian or preacher or whoever, why can we not do that at, at our spoken word? Because we there is no reason to bear witness because we have the witness. This is our this is our truth. And and this is God's word. And so it doesn't have to be authenticated. Now people can accept it or reject it. It makes no difference. It's still God's word. It's still truth. And and so um, today, there is no reason for us to do miraculous things, for Christians to do miraculous things. And, and I hate saying that because anytime you witness to someone and they trust Christ, that's the greatest miracle of all. Someone has been born again. They, they, they have escaped an eternity of hell, and, and, and that's the greatest miracle of all today that can be done. And it happens all the time. And we should just think about it that way. Instead of thinking, why can't I heal the sick? Why can't my prayers heal the sick? Why can't I go to the hospital and touch people and they be, they be healed? Because that's not this time. This is not the time for that. Uh, this, this was a power God gave them to, to, to authenticate their work. You think about it. These were average people. These were not rabbis. These were not uh, learned in the sense that they had been to a seminary. They hadn't been taught by Gamil or or any of the leading rabbis of that day, they were fishermen and tax collector and a zealot, and, and they were average people who had been called by Christ, and they looked average. They, they didn't have two tunics. They didn't have a change of clothes. And they went to the people and say, Jesus is the Messiah. Trust him. Trust him alone. Trust in what he's doing. Trust, trust in him for your salvation. And why would people believe them? You know, why, why would people, but I, I've had people tell me that they're the Christ. I, I've had people who told me that they're the Christ. Why would I believe them? Well, I, I don't because I have the Bible, but, but if I just look at them, if I say, okay, create, a, create another world and I'll believe, you know, do, do something like that and I'll believe in you. So it's really interesting. There's, there's so much confusion about this today and there doesn't, there doesn't have to be. So, there, there are many who were uh, saved, and there are many who were healed, and many who had demons cast out. And later, if I don't forget it, later in this chapter, they come back and report to Jesus. After we have this about John the Baptist and Herod, they come back and report to Jesus and tell him all they did. And what that means is that they understood their power came from him. Their power wasn't inherent in themselves and in their own faith. Their power came from him. He gave them the power to do that for this time. And later, after he's resurrected, he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. 
which is going to empower them to be faithful and to understand the Word of God. So not to empower them to do exactly the same thing. They do some of it to authenticate the Word of God, but not as much as they did during this time. I hope, I hope you understand that. I hope I hadn't made that confusing to you. So now we have the story of Herod and John the Baptist. And you're thinking, okay, why is this stuck in here? Why is this, why is this about Herod and John the Baptist put in? And I think it's pur- purposeful by Mark, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think about it when, after we read it. Now, read in verse 14. Now, King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So Herod ruled in the northern part of Israel. He really wasn't a king. He was just, that was his title given by Mark and some of the people. But his kingship went, this gets a little confused to you, but maybe in some Bible, some reference Bibles, you have the chronological uh, family tree of Herod, of the Herods. Okay, when Jesus was born, it was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great then fathered these other Herods, and Herod kind of was a title. And, and this is Herod Antipas, and he had a brother named Herod Philip, and there, there were other Herods as well during this time. And there's going to be a different Herod later on that's going to kill, uh, that, that Jesus is going to appear before, so it's not this Herod. But what happens is that, well, it is this Herod, but... Now I'm confused myself. I'm confused myself. <laughs> but so anyway, wasn't really a king, but he was the ruler of this northern part of Israel, and somebody else ruled the southern part. Actually, it was ruled by Pontius Pilate. So there wasn't a Judean ruler over the southern part. It was ruled by a Roman, by Pontius Pilate. But Herod was up in the northern part, and so he hears about, Jesus, and he thinks, his conscience smites him, and he thinks, that's John the Baptist. Now, why would his conscience smite him for John the Baptist? You don't remember the story. Well, Mark gives us the story, so let's just read it. Others said, verse 15, it's Elijah. Others said, it's a prophet or like one. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded, for he has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And because he said that publicly, and probably more than one time, Herodias, this is what we read here, verse 19, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he had he protected him, but he always had him in prison. But when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So here, here's the backstory to that, if, if, if you're interested. Um, Herod Antipas, who this is, Herod Antipas, coveted, he, he was married to a princess, of, of a neighboring country, Arabia. And so he married that princess. And so, but he coveted Herodias, who was his niece. And she was married to another uncle, his brother's, his brother. 
And, and so he, she, he coveted her, and so he convinced her, one of the scriptures, you can read this in a little history if you want to go on Wikipedia. He convinced her to come, and she said, but you have to get rid of your wife. So he divorced, or got rid of, however you do it then. He, he divorced the princess, his wife, the princess of Arabia. He divorced her, and he married Herodias. Okay, and, and at that damn time, in, in, Jewish, in, in Jewish law... If your if your brother died, you could you, you were supposed to take his wife and bring up seed to his name, but not if he was still alive. You couldn't do that. Not if you're still alive. You couldn't just divorce and remarry someone who's still alive. And so, what Herod was, what John the Baptist was doing, he was saying to Herod, "You're an adulterer. You're an adulterer." And so, imagine this. When you read about John the Baptist in the other gospel, he's got a crowd. I mean, he draws a crowd. And, and he drew the soldiers, and he drew the some Pharisees who got baptized by him. And so he, he draws a crowd when he goes, because he came in the spirit of Elijah. And a lot of people thought he was Elijah, come, come back again. And so he, he draws a crowd, and he's denouncing Herod. And Herodias, who... This adulterous woman is a little ticked off. And you know what they say about a ticked off woman. I'm not going to say anything more about that. But so she wants to kill him. So Herod arrests him, has him in prison. And then you probably know the story. So on, on his birthday, he has this feast. And Herodias has a daughter named Salome, which is not Herod's daughter, but her daughter. And she comes in and dances. And in that day and time, they would pay for dancers to come and entertain the royalty, but they, you'd never have royalty themselves do that. So it was very, it was probably very seductive and probably very unusual. And so Herod promises her, I'm going to just tell you the story. Herod promises her, whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom. I mean, he's, that, that's the lustfulness of his character. He's, he's crazy. So whatever you want, you know, half of my kingdom and... She goes to her mother and says, what should I ask? And said, the head of John the Baptist. So she's getting her revenge, the head of John the Baptist. So we read here, and I'm going to skip that part. And when you go down to verse 25, immediately she came with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Her mother didn't say that. She added that part. And the king was exceedingly sorrow. Sorry, yet because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to meet, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And then when his disciples heard it, they came and his disciple, which would be John the Baptist's disciple, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. <clears throat> Really, really, really interesting. Why would God allow that? Jesus gives a eulogy of John the Baptist and said there has, been, there has not been a greater man born of a woman than John the Baptist. John was the forerunner of Christ. He was the herald that Jesus is coming. Why would Jesus let him die in a prison? Why, why didn't he? He could have said a word and the prison doors would have opened and John could have walked out. Why didn't he? Why does he let us suffer? Let's just bring it home. This is what we're interested in. Why does he let us suffer? 
Why, why does he let us, as we age, become infirm? Why does he let us, as, as we age, all sorts of things happen to us? Not just our body becomes infirm, but our mind becomes infirm. Why would he allow that? Why, why would he allow those we love to, to die? Why would he allow COVID and cancer and earthquake? Why does he allow that? And, and it's really a question we ask ourselves. When we're suffering, we ask that. What is the purpose? What are you doing? Why is this story in this place? Why did Mark pull this in amongst Jesus teaching his miracle? Why did he pull this in to, to this place? <clears throat> I, I don't know. And I, to give you the full answer, I don't fully know. I've got some ideas, and I'll, I can give you my ideas. Uh, John himself said that, that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Now, did he have to decrease all the way to dying and go off the scene? I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe for people to quit following John the Baptist and begin to follow Jesus, maybe so. That seems a little radical to me, but possibly that is so. We idolize some people who had a significant part of our life. We, we, instead of being appreciative, we began to idolize them. I don't know if that's part of it. I, I don't know if it's the story here to teach the disciples who are following Jesus that there are things in his future, Jesus' future, that's going to be just like John the Baptist. They're going to take him, and out of spite, out of jealousy, Pilate said, uh, the Jews are jealous of Jesus, they murder him. I don't know. Uh, They put him on the cross. I, I don't know. Jesus is teaching his disciples as he goes toward the cross that he's going to give up his life and die, and they can't grasp it. Even till right before he was arrested, you know, and Peter says, I, I, I will never let that happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So, you know, again, so he's, he's teaching his disciples. He, he's allowing these things to happen. Mark puts it in as we're reading. And, and think about it. This is first century people reading this for the first time. They didn't meet Jesus in the flesh. They, 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 didn't, they didn't know someone personally who had been healed by him. So they're reading this and they're saying, wow, wow, why is that there? Why, why is this happening? Why are bad things happening to me? And so what, what do I make of this? And that's how we need to read the scriptures. Like, what do I make of this? Why, why, is, why is this going on? And I think, I think part of it, Jesus wants the disciples to know, you know, this is life. This is what happens. You stand for me, you're going, you're going to pay for it. And they did pay for it. All but John were martyred, and, and they, had a, they had a various lengths of ministry before that, but they did pay for it, and this is a forerunner of that, I think. I think about, I read a little bit when I was reading this, and I read a little bit about, about history. During the Reformation, when Henry VIII came to the throne in England, he, he was married to, oh, I can't think of her name, but, you know, anyway, he was married to a wife, and he fell in love with one of her uh, court, and so he wanted to marry her, but he, but England was Roman Catholic, and you couldn't do that. You couldn't divorce and remarry. So it led to him, it led to Henry VIII breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church and establishing the Church of England. This is, just, this is history compressed in a couple minutes. So he established the Church of England, and he's the head of the church. And believe it or not, in the Church of England, you can do what you want to if you're the head of the church. So he gets rid of his wife, and he marries um, this Bolin woman. <clears throat> so he, he marries her, 
and he had a uh, he had a priest at court. He had and his name was Hugh Latimer, <laughs> and, and Hugh Latimer presented him a New Testament uh, as a New Year's gift. And in that New Testament, here, here's what we read. It, it had a napkin with a posy on it. Now, we don't use that English, but what it had, it had a bookmark with a scripture. And the bookmark with the scripture said this, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Now, that's, that's a lot of character, isn't it? I, I don't know that I'd present that to the king. Uh, Hugh Latimer ultimately lost his life. He's ultimately burned at the stake. Now, King Henry VIII didn't do that. One of his... When, when, one of the, when Mary came to the throne, it went, reverted back to Catholicism, and they burned him then because Hugh Latimer was a Protestant. And so they burned him at the stake during that time. You may have heard this before. When he was going to the stake, he, he said um, to his, a man who was burned with him, uh, he said, uh, I thank God most heartily that he's prolonged my life to this end, that I may in this case glorify God by this kind of death, to which uh, his persecutor replied, if you go to heaven in your faith, and I'm going to say your faith, if you go to heaven in your faith, then I will never come hither, for I am not thus persuaded. Well, that probably happened. That probably, Hugh Latimer did go to heaven, and his persecutor did not go to heaven. It's really interesting is that people die for the faith. Now, see, the disciples are listening, and they're, they're hearing this about John. What, what's going to happen? Why? What's going to happen to us? If he preached that, that Jesus is the Christ, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then what's going to happen to me if I follow him? And, you know, they're still thinking about rebellion. They're still thinking about conquering the Romans. And they believe it's possible because they go back shortly in their history and the Maccabeans have done that. This ragtag bunch of army had driven out uh, the, the Greek leadership and had overcome uh, their nation and restored the freedom to Israel, and their thing, it's possible to do it again if all of Israel rises up. When you read about this, you read about the weakness of Herod's character. Think about from the time he put John the Baptist to death, his conscience smote him. And when he began to hear about Jesus, he's thinking, oh no, I'm in trouble. This is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but my conscience smites me sometimes. My conscience smites me, and it, it always frustrates me. Either You know, either you repent or you go crazy. When your conscience smites you, you have to you either, you either humble yourself before God and your wife occasionally, or you nearly go crazy, and you, and you try to justify yourself. It, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. Uh, Herod knew he was a sinner. He, he listened to John when he came to speak, but he didn't repent. He, 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 wanted, he wanted some resolution to his guilt. It, it, but John wouldn't give that to him, but he listened to him. He, he hoped for that. Um, I, I think about when Paul's in prison and he, the, the ruler called for him in the book of Acts and listened to him for two years, uh, but didn't, didn't let him go. So when we read this about his weakness of character, that his, his wife demanded that John be killed, and he gave in. He didn't want to, but he, but he gave in. Um, Shakespeare said this. I, I don't 
particularly read Shakespeare, but I tried to, but it's pretty hard, but I read quotes from him. He said, there is a line by us unseen which crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's mercy and his wrath. If Herod had repented at John's preaching, he would have been saved, but he didn't. So what, what happened to him is that the wife he divorced, her father, the, the king of Arabia, came and attacked uh, Herod's armies, and, and Herod was defeated, and Rome deposed him. So he answered to Rome. So Rome deposed him, and he and his wife, Heredia, Heredia were sent to Gaul, and there they both committed suicide. So it didn't work out for him. He crossed that boundary, and it was over. He won that battle with John during that time, but he lost the war. John Phillips quotes Napoleon. I thought this was in there. Britain loses. Napoleon said this, Britain loses every battle but the last one. And uh, he, he, Herod, lost that war. So we have that just stuck in there. I, I think for the disciples' instruction for the people of the first century, they knew about this happening. I think they, uh, he's saying, you know, life is like this. Life is like this, and you need to be righteous. You need to listen to people like John, who, who spoke about holiness and righteousness. And, and you, you need that for yourselves. And now you come to verse 30, and let me see. Yeah, we got a few more minutes. Come to verse 30. And the apostles gathered to Jesus and told them all things, what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourself. To a deserted place and rest, uh, for there were many coming and going. They done, did not even have time to eat. So what happens is that um, they came and reported about all the people they had preached to, and those that healed, and those that cast out demons, and they were acknowledging that the power came from Him. I mentioned that earlier, and so they leave from there and they go again in the presence of the crowd. He told them to come aside. Verse 32, but they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran their own foot from all the cities. They arrived before him and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And then he's going to do the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Verse 35, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy for themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And then you know the story. I'm going to summarize it. <clears throat> Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Now, 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 why? This is the only miracle that's reported in all four Gospels. I think it's very significant that this is true. I want you to think about this. He's going to take five loaves of bread, a little boy's lunch, five probably loaves of bread. We would call them biscuits, probably. He's going to take these, these little loaves of bread and two fish. You know, they're not big loaves. It really doesn't matter. And he's going to feed 5,000 men. And so probably with whatever women were there and whatever children, it could have been between seven and, and 10,000 people. They're going to set them down in rows, orderly. It's a military term like 50s and 100s, and the disciples are going, Jesus is going to break the bread and feed them. <clears throat> and, and so, you know, what is he doing? I want you to think about what he had done before 
could have been misinterpreted. Remember two weeks ago when Jesus, the, the, the woman with an issue of blood, she came and was healed immediately when she touched Jesus. But the disciples couldn't see that. They couldn't see what happened internally in her. He goes from there to Jairus's house, Jared's house, and he raises his daughter from the dead. But on their way in the door, the crowd was, he, he, he said she's merely sleeping, and the crowd mocked him. And he only took three of the disciples in the room with him. He left the others outside. And the rest of the crowd who was following him outside, and he raised her from the dead. But they had heard she's only sleeping. So it could have been that she just revived. Okay? Now, you go back and you think about some of the other miracles. You know, when he, when he stilled the storm before, uh, before this time, when he stilled the storm, you think, well, the storm could have blown through. I, I don't know if you've heard the wind's going to gust up to 35, 40 miles an hour today. And uh, bad news if you hadn't heard that. But, <clears throat> but, you know, once that front blows through, it's over. And they, and they could have been thinking, well, you know, did, did, did he steal the storm or, or did it just come to an end? You know, did he, did he take credit for it? You think, well, why would they be thinking those things? Because they're human. Because they're, they're just like us. They, they, they're human. They're, they're risking their lives and they want some assurance. And, and, and so all of these things. But when you, take, when you take these five loaves of bread and two fish and you feed six or seven or eight or 10,000 people, even if it was just five, if you feed 5,000 people, that goes on for hours. That doesn't happen in a few minutes. That goes on for hours. They saw him look up to heaven and break it and keep breaking it and keep breaking it and keep breaking it. I mean, and they took up 12 baskets full of the remains. So it didn't happen in a moment. It took them hours to distribute it to that crowd, or at least, you know, a long time to distribute it to that crowd. And probably more than 12 disciples, probably other people got involved in the distribution as well. And, and that, that was a significant miracle that no one could deny. They saw it. They ate it. They, they had leftovers that they took with them. And, and, you know, what happens is that the Lord doesn't want us to believe because of miracles. He wants us to believe because of his, of his word. He wants us to trust in him, in, in his word, and, and, and believe in him. Look what happens next. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get her in a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethesda. Bethesda and and he, he sent the multitude away. And when he sent them away, he departed to a mountain to pray. You remember before I talked about they, they had this miracle and a crowd and then they went into the house. He, he chose them. They went into a Here... They just fed these, I mean, they fed these multitudes of people, and then he sends the disciples away. He tells them to get in the boat and go this. He sends them away. Now, why? And, and I can say to you, um, <laughs> I can say to you, I, I want to say it in the right way, uh, so let me think about it for a moment. <clears throat> I can say to you that every preacher who has pastored a church wants a crowd. They want a multitude. Because that is our culture's mark of success. And the disciples wanted a revolution. They would have begun to organize the multitude. They would have expected Jesus, let's organize this multitude and all those other crowds that follow. Let's organize them into the army. 
You remember on another occasion, they wanted, they wanted to take Jesus and make him king. They, they wanted to corn, uh, crown him right then and, and get this started. Let's just get started on this revolution. And Jesus sends them away. He doesn't, he doesn't want them to be thinking in that line. He doesn't want the disciples thinking, man, we got it now. I mean, we're, we're going to town. When you're reading John's gospel and you, you read that there's a multitude following Jesus and he says to them, if you're going to follow me, you've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood or you have no part in me. And they were offended and most of them went away. And the disciples are thinking, what in the world are you doing? They're, yeah, they're following us. They're, this is, you're successful. And, and you drove them away by this hard saying. Because Jesus doesn't want your faith to be based upon the miraculous. He doesn't want your faith to be based upon anything but the promise of God and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. See, that's hard for us to learn. We, we, we who know Christ already as Savior, we have the same problem in a little different vein. We believe that, that the love of God is, bless, is based upon the blessing of God. Now, I'm just preaching to you and making an application for this. That's our default thinking. If I don't have the blessing of God upon my life, materially, physically, mentally, if I, if I don't have that, then I don't have the love of God. No, the love of God is that, you read in Romans 5.8, is that he who offered up his own son, how, how, could he not, how could he love you any more than that? He offered up his own son for you. See, that's the love of God. We still live in a sin-cursed world and a sin-cursed body, and, and, and we're going to have problems with the curse of sin and the physical universe for as long as we are here, and the end is we die. But there's more than that end. The end is we are given a redeemed body and dwell in the presence of Christ forever. And see, what, that's what we need to remember. We, we need to remember it's not about the moment, but it is about the glory of God to come and the, the hope we have today. And that's hard for us when we're the, in the midst of trial. It's hard for us to remember that. When, when we're struggling, it's hard for us to remember that. When our life hasn't gone as we had hoped it might, it's hard for us to remember that, isn't it? I struggle with that. I'm sure you struggle with that. But, but we, we have to come back to the Word of God and think the faithfulness of Christ eternally is what matters to us. And, and we, we just fight the battle. And we struggle against the lust of the flesh and the, 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 the pride of life and, 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 the, and the draw of the world. We struggle against I'm not talking about we go to a monastery. I mean, in our daily life, we just say, you know, I, I, I'm just talking to you now that's not in the notes. The Lord's given us responsibility for that. You know what he told the disciples? You don't take those things with you. You don't take a coat or, or a set, but just go and trust me. But then he reversed it in Luke chapter 22, and he said, now now you take your muddy bag, and now you take your coat, and now you, now you go into the world. And, you know, it's for us. We're to earn a living. We're to accumulate things and Proverbs says that if you're doing it right, you pass them on to your children. And so, you know, what, what happens is that we are to do those things, but we're never to trust them. We're never to trust them. It's not, it's not the significant thing in our lives. It doesn't give us significance. It's Christ, our Lord, our Savior, who gives us significance. 
It's Christ and Christ alone. And if we can remember that, and, and that becomes our faith and, and the strength of our faith, then we're blessed. And then we have joy and peace that's unshakable. Hebrews says that this kingdom we live in is going to be shaken, and the only things remain is that which is unshakable. And that which is unshakable is our faith in Christ. That's the only thing that's unshakable. Well, pray with me, and we'll go. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, trust in you. Help us, to, uh, Lord, to, to glory in the promises you've made to us. Uh, Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon you and not totally our circumstances. Help us to be faithful in our circumstances, to, to, to battle and to pray. And, 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 do, and Lord, uh, they beat us down sometimes. We admit that and confess to that. And, but, Lord, we, we want to have hope. We want to be people who live with hope. And I pray for myself. I pray for every person in the room this morning, Lord, that you would, uh, in, 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 Lord, uh, strengthen our hope in you. And, and, Lord, we'll be grateful. We'll praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, Lord bless you. We'll see you in church.